So a testimony, our testimony, it's a powerful thing, right? We all got one. Every one of us has a testimony. Whether it be someone who's been battling with the throes of addiction for decades on end or an upscale debutante, right, who struggles with, with vanity and pride. We each have our own specific story about how Christ brought us from death into a new life. And it's through these testimonies that we get an opportunity to plead and to persuade a lost and broken world who is so desperate to, to, to see the face of their Savior. Showing who we were and who Christ has made us now to be. Um, our testimonies allow us to illustrate through our story, the, the love and the grace and the mercy of our King Jesus. And there's probably, hands down, no more impactful testimony than that of, of Paul the Apostle. We're going to see here as we open up the text in, in, in Acts chapter 26, and as we start to unpack it, um, Paul is given the opportunity to testify in front of, of a Roman elite. Roman royalty, and he recognizes very quickly, as he has his entire life, that the opportunities that God gives him to be in front of a, a, a group of people, he doesn't take a he doesn't take a second, but to try to convince these men and women of exactly how amazing our King is, and and who he was, and what God did to bring him to where he is. So Acts chapter 26, it kind of drops us right in the, in the middle of a scene, right? So I just want to back up for a second so we can catch up to where we are uh, when we pick up the text. So Paul was rescued by Lysias. He was the captain of the Roman guard, right? Back in Jerusalem from that angry mob that was trying to kill him in Acts chapter 21 because it was, uh, uh, he was being accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple, right? So he was taken into protective custody once they, they, it was brought to their attention that there was uh, a group of Jews who had made a vow that they weren't going to eat or drink until Paul was dead, right? So when they found out that this was going on, they took Paul under special guard and they brought him to the city of Caesarea. There, he appeared before Governor Felix, who would hold Paul prisoner for around two years, more or less for, as a political pawn, right, in the Game of Thrones that they had going on there in the mini Rome of Caesarea. Eventually, Felix would be removed by Rome because of some corruption that he had going on, and he'd be replaced by Governor Festus. Now, Festus, he had to figure out what to do with this Paul situation that he inherited along with his title, right? Um, he had a whole group of Jews back in Jerusalem breathing down his neck because they've been waiting now two years to see Paul killed. So he tries to, he attempts to persuade Paul to just go back to Jerusalem and, and deal with and with the stuff back there, right? Go deal with all these charges back in Jerusalem. Paul's not stupid, right? He says, man, I ain't going back there. My mama didn't raise no fool. I'm not going to deal with those crazy Jews. Matter of fact, so that we can go ahead and clear this all up right now, I invoke my right to appeal to Caesar, right? So Paul, being a Roman citizen, Festus has no choice. He's obligated. He's got to send Paul to Caesar. The problem is he doesn't really have any legitimate charges to send Paul to Caesar on, right? And that's not going to fly. You can't send a man to the emperor and send him there with charges that have 
are exclusively Jewish issues, right? He broke some Jewish traditions and some Jewish rules about the temple. The emperor doesn't care about any of that. So he's in a pickle. Festus doesn't know what he's going to do um, until he hears that King Agrippa and Bernice are coming down for a visit, right? Festus jumps on the opportunity to get Paul in front of Agrippa so that Agrippa can hear Paul's testimony, hear Paul's case, and perhaps be able to find out uh, how to lock some charges in on him. King Agrippa is Festus's best chance to get some legitimate charges because King Agrippa comes from a family who's for years and years been ingrained in the Jewish community. Uh, King Agrippa, he is the, uh, the great-grandson of King Herod the Great. We know King Herod the Great, right, from the beginning of Matthew. When Jesus was born, Herod went on that murderous rampage, killing every child under two years old. King Agrippa is also the nephew of King Herod Antipas. We know him, right? He's the guy who, who stole his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And then after her daughter did a, did a few lap dances, he promised her anything she wanted. What she wanted was what her mom wanted. That was the head of John the Baptist. So he ends up lopping it off and handing it to her. And he's also the son of Herod Agrippa I. And we know from the beginning of Acts, Herod Agrippa I is the man who got eaten by worms. Remember? Because the guys in Tyre and Sidon, they were praising him and he was allowing them to call him a god. He was also the man who uh, murdered James the Apostle and he imprisoned Peter. So where we pick up here now in Acts chapter 26, we've got Paul. He's in Caesarea. He's in front of King Agrippa, Bernice, his wife, and Governor Festus. And it says their entire uh, entourage of pomp, right? He brought in everybody. And Paul is standing in front of him with the attempt that they're going to lock some charges in on him. But Paul's going to get the opportunity to give his... Uh, to give his testimony to King Agrippa. So we pick up here in verse 1 of Acts 26. It says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. He said, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So King Agrippa, he ultimately was raised a Jew, right? His great-grandfather that I mentioned before, King Herod the Great, he claimed to be a Jew. And he raised his entire family to be Jews. He actually went by the title King of the Jews, which probably it was when the Magi came and they said that we're seeking the child who will be born King of the Jews. Probably what sent Herod into his murderous tailspin, trying to kill every child under two years old. Herod also was the guy who, who rebuilt the temple. Remember when they came back from Babylon? Remember Zer uh, Zerubbabel? He built the temple, but it was less than mediocre, right? The Jews were not happy with it. It didn't even add up to the old temple. So Herod came in and he rebuilt the new temple and built the, sermon, uh, uh, the, temple, the temple mount. Paul here is saying that he's happy to be in front of him because finally he's going to be, he knows that Agrippa is an expert in everything Jewish. So finally somebody's going to be able to understand and be able to navigate between all of these Jewish customs and traditions and find out if Paul actually did anything wrong. So verse four says, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So Paul is saying, man, all my people know who I am. 
they know my resume. And if they were being honest, they would tell you that I lived at the standard of a Pharisee, which is way more strict than any of them were living. I had to live up to such a standard that none of them could even compare. Paul tells us in, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, he gives us his resume a little bit. Right? He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. And he says, concerning righteousness in the law, blameless. Verse 6, he says, and now I stand and, and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12, 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? So Paul, excuse me, so Paul, knowing that Agrippa believes in the promises and the prophecies, he takes him right to the promises, reminding him that God promised our forefathers that there was going to be a Messiah. He says, and Jesus Christ is that Messiah that God promised to our fathers. See, I believe that Paul says, when he says that I'm happy to be in front of you, King Agrippa, I believe that Paul was happy to be in front of King Agrippa, not because he was concerned that he may get his charges acquitted. I don't think that was the case at all. I think Paul was praying that because he was in front of King Agrippa, he might actually get the opportunity to convert Agrippa to faith in Jesus Christ. I think Paul's thinking, man, if I can get this guy to come to the faith, imagine the influence that he would have. I mean, this is the king. Imagine how far we could spread the gospel if I could get King Agrippa of Rome behind this whole thing. This could be huge. We're going to see throughout everything that we're going to read in Paul's entire defense that his one real objective through this whole thing was to convert King Agrippa to faith in Jesus Christ. So right away, we see here, we see Paul, he starts tugging on the king by saying, why should it be thought incredible by you? That God raises the dead. You see, most of the problem that people have today is, is with their concept of God. See, their concept is too small. It's too limited. They have what is called an anthropomorphic concept of God. It's man's concept. It's, it's man's idea of God or man creating God. And the reality of it is, whenever man attempts to create God in his own version of God, he always creates him too small. There are a lot of people who have trouble with certain things in the Bible. They can't wrap their heads around it, like, like Moses parting the Red Sea or, or Jonah uh, uh, surviving in the belly of a whale for three days. Right? They just can't seem to understand it, as though that's so far-fetched. When the reality is, if, if God had wanted to, he could have way back then created an Apache helicopter and had it go snatch Jonah out of the sea and drop him off in Nineveh if he wanted to. I mean, he's God. He created the universe and everything in it. If our concept of God is correct and we have the right perspective, then we shouldn't think it too impossible for God to create a fish big enough to hold Jonah inside its belly for three days. We certainly shouldn't think it too difficult for God to be able to raise somebody from the dead back to life. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent that's doing the work, right? Difficulty has to always be measured 
by the capacity of the agent that's doing the work. The very first verse in the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. If we can wrap our heads around that, we should have no problem wrapping our heads around something like Jonah. If we can believe the first verse, then we can believe everything that comes after that. Because a God who is big enough to create the heavens and the earth is certainly big enough to do anything and everything that the Bible tells says that he does after that, right? Paul, knowing that Agrippa's concept was too limited, he begins to uh, give him a new perspective by asking him a question. He says, Agrippa, why do you think it's so crazy that God could raise somebody back from the dead? Why is that so nuts to you? Paul's going to attempt over these next few verses, he's going to attempt to to give Agrippa that new perspective that he needs by giving his own testimony about how God raised him from the dead into a whole new life. Verse 9, it says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often into every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Paul says, man, there was a time when just like these Jews who were accusing me, I thought I had to do everything in my power to snuff out this Jesus movement. He said, I locked them in prison. Men, women, children didn't matter. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he said, I cast my vote to put them to death. I chased them city to city. There was no place they couldn't go. Dragging them out of churches. I even forced them to deny the name of Christ. You know, on April 20th, 1999, two 12th grade students walked into Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, armed with a Tech 9 and a shotgun. Right? They killed 12 students while wounding over 20 before they turned the guns on themselves. Now it was reported during this massacre that those students, those gunmen, they gathered up the children of that school and they made them kneel down in front of them. And they went down to each one of them and they asked them one question each. They said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And for the students, for the children that that, that had the boldness, that had the courage to profess, yes, I do, the gunmen pointed their weapons at their skulls and they put bullets in them. Paul's admitting here to King Agrippa, he's saying that he did that exact same thing. He said that in his former life, he also compelled them to blaspheme. Paul savagely hunted down the church of Christ and he forced them to choose between Jesus Christ or being murdered by his own hand. Man, how horribly this must have affected Paul years later. As a man that, 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 that now knows the truth of Jesus Christ, how badly must he have regretted what he had done for all those years? He tells us a little bit about it in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I ch- persecuted the church of God. But I'll tell you, I know for a guy like me who's been where I've been and who's done some of the stuff that I've done, Man, I need this testimony from Paul. Because it's, it's testimonies like this that let me know that no matter how bad it got, no matter how deep I dug, 
man, that we serve a big, big God who is capable to forgive and he's capable to, to raise the dead back to new life. You know, no doubt this is what Paul was talking about when he said that I'm a new creation, right? The old is gone as the new has come. But not only that, I need this testimony because it, with it, it doesn't allow me to decide who is too far gone, right? It stops me from determining who I will and won't allow the Lord to use me to go and reach. Because if they can save a murderous terrorist like Paul, like Saul of Tarsus, then there is nobody too far gone for the gospel of Christ. And testimonies like this remind me of that. Verse 12, Paul goes on. He says, while thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. He said, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and, and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. You see, back in those days, they would put the young oxen in the yoke, right? And more times than not, those young ox, they didn't like it. They didn't like it one bit. So naturally, they would begin to kick, right? Trying to get out of it, buck out of it. And the man who was running the plow, he would be equipped with a long stick with a pointed end, which is called a goad. And every time that young ox would kick his feet up, the man who running the plow would position that goad behind his heel. And soon enough, that ox would learn how to not kick, right? The man would be like, go ahead, kick. It's going to hurt. That's what the Lord's saying to Paul here. St. Paul, why do you keep bucking, man? It's got to be hard to kick against the goads. You know, I get a feeling that, that Paul had been kicking against the goads for a long, long time. I get a feeling that the spirit had been working on Paul long before the conversion that we see here on the road to Damascus. Maybe it was from uh, uh, the, the murder of Stephen, right? The church's first martyr. Acts chapter 7 tells us that his face shone like that of an angel. And it tells us that before he died, while he was getting stoned, Stephen prayed that the Lord would, forget his, would forgive his murderers for what they were doing. Man, that must have been hard to shake. I don't know how you do. Or it could have been all the men and women who refused to deny Christ and he ended up killing them right there on the spot. Right? The certainty and the conviction that was in their eyes as they gladly chose his blade over denying their king. How do you shake something like that? Paul had been kicking against the goads for a long, long time before the Lord hijacked him on this road. So Luke, we all know, he's already recorded uh, this, this situation in Acts chapter 9, right? The road to Damascus conversion. But here in chapter 26, from Paul's own words, we get a lot more detail about exactly what our king said to Paul when he had him on the ground there, blinded by that light. So we'll pick up in, in, in verse 15 here. He says, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. 
For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will reveal, yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by me or by faith in me. So Jesus says that he is going to make him a minister. Now what's really interesting is in the Greek, the same word that we translate minister is also translated under oarsman. Now an under oarsman in those days, he was the slave that was down in the belly of the ship. And his job was to row. His job was to row that ship. Now the real interesting thing about an under oarsman is, is his ability to row or his decision making behind that rowing had nothing to do whatsoever with any external factors. There's no windows in the belly of a ship. He has no idea whatsoever of what is going on outside. He doesn't know if it's storming. He doesn't know if it's calm size, skies. He doesn't know what's going on. The only directives that he's given are the ones that are hollered down to him by the captain up above. Right? So it's a remarkable contrast Paul will experience here going from a from an honored leader and a Pharisee, right? Calling his own shots, leading a campaign of soldiers behind him to becoming a subordinate servant as taking his orders from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells him here, he says that he promises to reveal to Paul some things. He says he's going to reveal to him the mysteries of the gospel. He says he's going to deliver him from all those who might attempt to stop him. And he says he's going to send him as an ambassador to open the eyes of the blind and lost Gentiles. Now, Paul will later re- write to the, Ephes- the, the Corinthians in chapter 2, and he'll say that the God of this age has blinded them, lest the gospel of Christ should shine on them. And now he's talking about this blindness, right? This inability to recognize that, uh, to recognize truth. You see, there are two kingdoms in this world. There are two spiritual governments. There's a government of God and there's a government of Satan. Right? We reside in one or the other. We all, throughout our lives, exist in one government or the other. Satan, the father of lies, he blinds those that are in his government. Um, and he blinds them to certain things. He blinds us when we were in his government to our actions. He blinds us to the existence of any other government or any other God. And he blinds us to how our actions are affecting our relationship with that true God. But then through the word of God and the message of the gospel, our eyes are open, right? Our eyes are open and we finally get an opportunity to recognize what real truth is and what real freedom is. And we get to recognize how oppressed we were and we didn't even know it. We didn't even realize that we were, we were dug in to the government of Satan until this, it, the gospel of Christ should shine on us and it broke the blindness out of our eyes and we recognized it. Paul was the blindest of them all. But God will hijack him from the path that he's on, open his eyes, and he's going to parachute him into the rest of the world so that he can continue to open the eyes of so many others along the way. Verse 19, it says, therefore, King Agrippa, 
I was not obedient. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn from God and do works befitting of repentance. So Paul says that he first went to the Jews all through Israel and then he moved on to the Gentiles. And the message that he brought, it was consistent with all the men of God that had come before him. Repent. Right. Now, we all know what repentance means. It means to make changes, right? You've got to make changes. There's no true repentance without change. You remember when John the Baptist was on the scene, right? And he was, he was crying out, repent. He was preaching, repent. And the people, they said to him, what does that look like? What do you mean repent? What is this repent you keep talking about? What, is, what do we need to do? And he said, I'll tell you what you need to do. He said, tax collectors, stop ripping people off. Be honest. He said, soldiers, stop beating people up, man. Stop lying about everything. You who have two tunics, give to the guy who's got none. He said, just make changes. Be better. That's what repentance is. But something that I've learned along the way is, is there is a, there's a very fine line, but there's a very big difference between repentance and sorrow, right? Now, I've been to jail and prison, and I've been there with a lot of guys who have been and have had all kinds of sorrow because they got caught, right? Very few of them are repentant. Very few of them are ready to actually make changes. A lot of guys that, that, that are sorry they got caught when the cuffs click on and the doors lock behind them, right? It's hard not to be. But as soon as the consequence runs its course, as soon as the family and the, and the judge stops breathing down your neck, they're right back at it. Right? That's just sorrow. Repentance is recognizing our sin, refusing to continue that way any longer in it, and making real changes. We stop walking in the flesh and we learn how to walk in the spirit. That's repentance. That's what Paul's talking about here. Verse 21. It says, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day, I stand. So Paul's saying, man, it was because I said these things that the Jews tried to grab me up and kill me back then. It was because I was preaching repent. But because God came to my rescue, I made it out of there. And Paul's talking about when the Roman soldiers came in and they arrested him out of Jerusalem. Paul recognizes that it was God who used these soldiers to get him out of that, that place so that before that angry mob killed him. You know, so often we fail to recognize God in the small things, right? We can find ourselves so convinced of what it's going to look like when God moves in our lives that we can totally miss it when God actually moves in our lives. You know, there was, I heard a story about this, this farmer, right? He, he lived on this plot of land his entire life. His father lived there before him, his father's father before him. And he was a man of God. And he got, there, 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 was a, there was a warning coming that the levee had broke and the flood was coming in. Everybody had to mass evacuate. Everybody had to get out of there. And this guy said, no, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, please save me from this. I'm not leaving this land. This is my daddy's land. We're going to stay put. So he makes that decision. So he's standing tall. And the sheriff shows up. And he says, man, you got to get out of here. 
the flood's coming. It's already hit the last town. Well, you, you've got to pack your stuff. I'll get you out of here. He said, no, man, God's going to save me. It's good. I got this. I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord. So the sheriff takes off. Lo and behold, the water comes. And it starts rising up on his house. And the man's forced up to the roof of his house. And a helicopter shows up. And they throw down the rope ladder and he goes over the microphone. He says, man, you got to grab the ladder. Jump on. You got to get out of here, man. You've only got moments left. He says, no, I'm good. God's going to save me. I'm good. Go. So the pilot takes off. He flies away. The water rises up again. The house is submerged. The man's in the water. And he's wading in the water. And then here comes a boat. The Coast Guard shows up. Throws him out of life preserver. Says, man, you got to grab the life preserver. We got to go. This is it. We can't wait any longer. You're going to die. I'm good. God's got me. I'm good. Go. So the boat leaves. Well, the man drowns. He dies. Right? He goes to heaven. He gets in front of God. He says, God, what happened? Where were you? God says, what do you mean? Where was I? I sent you a sheriff. I sent you a helicopter. I sent you a boat. So often, we can fail to recognize God in the small things. In the everyday commonplace things. You know, we're spinning out. Uh, life is just crumbling around us. And, 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 and we slam the door and go walk out of there. And, and, and we are completely uh, in our flesh. And then we walk by this mom playing with her two kids. Just laughing and, and, and pure. It's love. It's, it's, it's joy at its, at its most purest form. And all of a sudden, we forget what we were so upset about. That's God. You know, or you, or you're, you're in a real, real bad place. You think you're completely alone. Nobody knows what's going on. And nobody cares either way. And all of a sudden, you get a phone call from a, from a friend you haven't heard from in a long time. And they say, man, I was just thinking about you, man. I don't, you, you were just on my heart. I just want to let you know I love you, man. If you never need anything, you ever need to talk, just let me know. I'm here. That's God. We have to remember how to, how to see God in the everyday commonplace things. Paul's saying, man, God used those soldiers to save me before that mob beat me to death. He says, without him doing that, I wouldn't even be here. First, he says, witnessing the end of 22, he says, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses would come, said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul says, I was telling everybody from the least to the greatest, nothing different than what the scriptures said, that Christ would suffer, he would be the first to rise from the dead, and he would, he would offer salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. In verse 24, he says, now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in his corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Paul's saying, man, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking facts here. And King Agrippa, he knows what I'm talking about. He says, none of this stuff was done in, a, in secret. 
None of this was done behind closed doors. This was literally the biggest event that has ever happened in the last 500,000 years. This is Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody knew what happened. Jesus of Nazareth was a massively famous public figure. He was tried by the Sanhedrin and by the Roman governor Pilate. He was publicly crucified. And he was the center of probably the biggest controversy of all time. And the controversy was, did he rise from the dead? Or did somebody come in and steal his body out of his tomb, right? He's saying both both Festus and Agrippa knew exactly what he was talking about. So Paul then puts Agrippa on the line, right? He forces him to profess his faith. He says, King Agrippa, I know that you believe in the prophets. You see... Paul doesn't ask Agrippa if he believes in Jesus. He knows better than that. He takes something that he knows that Agrippa already believes in, and then he makes the connection between that and Jesus Christ, right? In verse 22, he'd already said, he said, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people. So now he's saying, Grippa, you believe the prophets, right? This is what the prophets said. So he closes that gap on how Jesus Christ is the Messiah and forces Agrippa to recognize that the same prophecies that were being said to Moses and the prophets are being played out right here and now. It's happening. It happened. Jesus Christ was here. He was the son of God. He was the Messiah. And he was killed and he rose again. And I'm here to stand and and tell the truth about it. Verse 28. It says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, there's a lot of controversy around how Agrippa said this to Paul. Right. It could have been one of two ways. He could have genuinely been saying Man, I was very close to becoming a Christian. Man, I was—you did a good job. I don't know. I'm on the—I'm on the fence. Or he could be saying, "Are you nuts? You think you're going to persuade me to become a Christian?" We don't know what it is. The Hebrew allows it to be said either way, without being able to hear the influx of the tone or be able to really understand what his face. Lo- we don't know how Agrippa was saying that to him. But I think that Paul's response here in the next verse, it it indicates that that Agrippa, in my opinion, I think he was being genuine. It seems that Paul had been very close to, to converting him. In verse 29, it says, and Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. So, Paul saying, man, I pray that you and everybody in this room can have what I have and know what I know and be what I am. He says, I don't wish that none of y'all get chained up like this. That's not what I'm saying. But don't get it twisted, King Agrippa and Festus. I might have these chains locking me up, but I'm the freest dude in this room. He's saying, I don't, I wish that you guys could be Almost and altogether just like me. So it sounds to me as though Agrippa was saying, man, I'm close. I'm close. You almost had me, Paul. That was good. And Paul's saying, man, I wish it wasn't almost. 
I wish I got you because you don't know what you're missing. In verse 30, he says, it says, when he said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked amongst themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing of deserving of death or changed. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You see, what Agrippa and Festus didn't understand that day was that regardless of how it looked, Paul was actually the judge and they had actually been the prisoners on trial. You see, they had been shown the, the light. They had been shown the way to freedom, but they had deliberately closed their eyes and returned to their, tr- and returned to their sin. The trial was over for Agrippa and Festus, but their sentence, man, their sentence was still to come. You know, it's the most amazing thing in the world to have the opportunity to trust Jesus and to be saved. But it is the most terrifying thing in the world to waste that opportunity and possibly never get another one before it's too late. We each have a testimony that speaks and illustrates and showcases the love and the grace and the mercy of our kin and what he can do in a life that is surrendered to him and is focused on him. I pray that as men and women of God, that we each pray for the opportunities and seize the opportunities to use those those testimonies to reach people and give them the opportunity to be saved to a life surrendered in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that we are all trophies and testimonies of you and your greatness, nothing that we did. We have no role in it except that we responded. We responded to the love that you showed us We responded to the Holy Spirit tugging. We responded to your patience and your unwillingness that any should suffer and die. Lord, we thank you that you continue to bring people into our lives, to give us opportunities to, to testify to them and to testify of you and to show them who you are through what you've done in us. Lord, we pray that you make more of those opportunities available for us. Pray that you make us aware of when those opportunities come. We pray that you make us, give us the ability to, to make you proud, to bring honor and glory to your name in everything that we do. God, I thank you for the, for the time that you allow us to spend here and talk about your greatness. We pray all this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.